If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, who has recently joined the esteemed ranks of the TechCrunch Boomerang Club. Hi, Alex Wilhelm. How's it going? Uh, it's going It's going well. I'm, I've am i always wanted to be a sports implement, so I'm glad to be a boomerang. Um, it's, I've been back for like a week and a half, and it's been surprisingly easy to come back, actually, in, in, in a really nice way. People have been really kind, and uh, hopefully I'm writing some good stuff, so I'll just kind of keep running as fast as I can. We're so happy to have you back. Um, you've already written like a thousand posts, probably like 20 actually, you've probably written 20 at least. Uh, I, I counted because I saw that in the script. I've written 21. So definitely. wow. You are on pace. I can't do that quick math, but you're on pace to write like a thousand posts this year or 2000 posts probably. Um, I don't know. I haven't done the math yet. I feel like we're in this weird holiday cycle when I keep waiting for the news to stop, but there's been so much of it that I've felt like I've had to kind of move faster than I expected to. Like I thought a week before Christmas, it was going to be kind of dead. Yeah, you're right. It's actually been pretty busy. I think it will die down next week. I remember last week, or sorry, last year around Christmas time, trying to find things to write about and having to write a post about how Bitcoin was struggling. And I do not, <laughs> I do not cover crypto. And it's just like desperate to write something. Uh, I, I, I've not had that problem this year. I mean, people are announcing funding rounds still. There mm-hmm. are big deals coming on. There've been some acquisitions. I mean, we have an entire section of new funds coming up. So, uh, so much for a slowdown. Uh, but before we do that, some housekeeping notes for everyone uh, listening in, which is, it is the holiday season. Equity is here this week. We are going to be off next week. We are taking a one-week hiatus because we are tired. Um, but we will be back uh, right when the new year begins. I think we'll be back January 3rd, if my memory holds up correctly. So fear not, Equity will be uh, right back uh, with some cool stuff. And then we turn three in March, I think it is. So uh, a lot of good things coming up that I'm pretty stoked about Um but other than that, kid, I think we can just dive in, yeah? Yeah, let's dive in. All right, so you're going to kick us off with uh, a trio uh, of new funds that were announced this week, back to the point that news is crazy. Yeah, there were at least three new funds announced yesterday, yesterday being Wednesday, probably more this week in total, but we, we're going to talk about three. The first one is Tusk Venture Partners, which is a venture capital and political consultancy firm that Bradley Tusk launched in, I think, 2015, I want to say. Um, I'll double check that. But uh, the firm raised a $70 million second fund, and they're behind companies like Bird Row, which is the healthcare company that sells erectile dysfunction medication and some other stuff as well, and um, Coinbase, which is the cryptocurrency exchange. Yeah, a pretty impressive list of companies from a comp, uh, from a firm, sorry, that raised a $36 million initial fund, which isn't, it's a lot of money for like you and I, as always, but it's not a lot of money for a venture capital company. So to see them yeah. go from 36 to 70, uh, given that initial set of companies, not too surprising. I'm kind of curious about their competitive edge, because if I recall correctly, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, the, the, the real calling card for Tusk Ventures was political connections and kind of political savvy. Like, you know, they had a lot of connections to people in D.C. And so that was going to help startups navigate those waters. You know, I'm curious if that holds up as an investment thesis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's doing, I mean, clearly because they are doubling the size of their debut fund, they are doing well and we're able to 
make the case to LPs. So Bradley Tusk was um, served as the campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg as deputy governor of Illinois and as communications director for Senator Chuck Schumer. Um, he also wrote a book called, called the, Fix, the Fixer, My Adventure Saving Startups from Death by Politics. So I think the, the reason why they are able to land deals with companies like Coinbase and Bird and Roe is these are companies that might have regulatory barriers and they, they can offer their expertise there. So actually, it makes a lot of sense because now that VCs these days are trying so hard to differentiate themselves, they have kind of this natural differentiation, which is politics and a political savvy that you're not going to get from really any other VCs. So it it makes sense that they could get in some big deals. I don't know what they've been doing recently as far as like landing some new really hot companies. Obviously, Bird was sort of the hot company of 2018, but less so in 2019. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of money in the market. They have a good place to fit in. I think based on what you said, and just keep in mind that the the political landscape for tech has changed dramatically in the last three years. Tech used to be this kind of like golden child. And I really want to say since Facebook really started getting beat up and antitrust fears began to rise again, regulatory concern has, I think, trebled or quadrupled in and around Silicon Valley. So that could help drive deal volume, but let's scoot on to Sapphire Ventures, which is the corporate, no, the former corporate venture arm of SAP, the German uh, kind of enterprise software giant. And this has a new fund, which is 1.4 billion. Kate, is that right? Yeah, it, they've raised 1.4 billion. It's kind of across a couple, maybe even three different vehicles, basically a main growth fund and an opportunity fund. So they can make really big investments in the most promising companies, or they can reinvest in some of their their most promising portfolio companies. So Sapphire Ventures used to be part of SAP. And interestingly, they did spin out in 2011 and they're fully independent, which is interesting because you don't see that very often. And the reason you don't see that is because there's so many perks to being a corporate venture fund, which is that you have unlimited, you can have unlimited capital because you're investing off the corporate's balance sheet or the corporation's balance sheet. But they decided to go fully independent and now they have nearly $4 billion um, in assets under management. I'm kind of curious if they're one of the most successful corporate venture funds of all time, kind of post spin out. Because I can't think of another CVC that has spun out that has raised that much money. GV. Oh, spin out. Oh, okay. I have. I can't. Can you? I can't think of another corporate VC that did spin out because I just don't know that that's the most common. I although, in um, Intel Capital or uh, Dell. Dell has something. I think it's internal though. Mm. I mean, a, a partial spin out would be like GV from Google. You know, but that's just landed inside the broader alphabet family, so it wouldn't quite fit. But to see them raise 1.4 billion, super impressive. It's late stage money, like it's 20, yeah. it's the end of 2019. I'm surprised always when people raise over a billion dollars to put to work now, but that's probably why I'm not a VC. Um, but the coolest new fund this week uh, was Moxie, M O X X I E, which has an interesting kind of uh, single uh, GP. Is that right? Yeah, um, the fund was launched by Katie Jacob Stanton, who's known best for co-founding Hashtag Angels, which is an investment collective. I think it's six women and they they independently invest their own money, but they share deals to help to help each other land some really some really awesome companies. And she has she has she's invested in a ton of companies while being at Angels. And her her own portfolio includes companies like Cameo, Carta, Coinbase, Lambda School, Modern Fertility, and and more. Um, and I really enjoyed talking to her. She was really open about the experience. And, you know, she said, even though she's clearly, well, she didn't say this, but even though she's clearly got a great reputation, it still took her six months to fundraise. And she said she had to reach out to, I think it was like 270 people before she was able to close what became a $25 million debut fund. 
that is a lot of no's or a lot of babies or a lot of laters. That's, that's, I'm glad I don't do that. $25 million is a lot of money for probably one investor Mm -hmm. to have, because certainly she didn't have that much capital beforehand. So she can do a lot more work Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. But one thing we've seen as a trend in this case is that uh, VCs were often kind of the LPs in this fund. And we were talking before the show and you said that's becoming uh, the norm, but it's not about deal flow, which surprised me. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed a trend in 2019 of a lot of people raising small venture capital funds. This is not, um, you know, this is not a tiny fund, but it's in the grand scheme of things. It's quite small and it's great. It's a great debut effort. But yes, a lot of the LPs in these these funds have been venture capitalists, people like um, GPs at Andreessen Horowitz or GPs at Sequoia or, you know, it's people like that who have plenty of money to invest and they are they're doing this to foster better relationships with some of these up and coming venture capitalists. Um, Katie is not up and coming, you know, she's, she's certainly established, but you know, people like Brianne Kimmel who launched a $5 million fund, I think maybe two months ago, she had a majority, I think of VCs in her LP base, which is, which is interesting. I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see a lot more of that actually next year. There's sort of this rise of angels turned kind of like these mini institutional VCs and there's a lot of perks to doing it on your own, I think. Well, I mean, one thing you don't have to do is rise to the ranks. I mean, mm-hmm. one thing I, I, people don't always remember is that VC firms have incredibly low turnover. And so there's not a lot of slots that open up up the hierarchy. And so you could possibly maybe join a fund as an analyst or an associate and kind of grind your way up over 15, 20 years. Or if you can just go raise 25 million, 20 million, 15 million, whatever, you can go just do it yourself and become top of the pyramid. So mm-hmm. I think that's True. probably partially why we've seen so many micro funds come out. My question though is, when the eventual correction comes, and there is a downturn, business cycles always happen. How many of these nano, quantum, micro, pico, whatever the the, the, the prefix is, funds uh, survive with a reasonable return and raise the second um, block of capital? Right, because they say the second fund is the hardest to raise because raising a small fund, kind of with an with this exciting, innovative vision that maybe these LPs have never heard before or a new exciting space like with Brienne where she's focused on kind of future of work where there are not that many LPs or sorry VCs that are exclusively investing in that space I, I can see why that would be exciting opportunity but yes the second fund is really difficult and the third fund as well and kind of making your way to like we've seen Samil Shah do with Haystack like really making your way into the the bigger leagues of, of VC and kind of proving that you you can do it on your own it, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you, you kind of put it that way because there's a there's a trend in music called the sophomore slump in which mm. people's first album is amazing and then their second album is not very good because they've had 20 years to write the first one and then they have 18 months to write the second one. So it's, it's so compressed that they get uh, they kind of stumble. Yeah, that's true. So it could be a similar idea. Um, but yeah. one thing I like about uh, Hashtag Angels going back a little bit yeah. was that they were getting more women onto cap tables in general. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've talked about a lot on the show over time has been... Uh, gender diversity inside of both the venture capital world and also in money dispersed by the VC world. And there were some new stats that you pulled out uh, that generated some some kind of weird drama in your life around a headline. And I wanted to I wanted to ask about that because I'm curious what kind of feedback you got from the post you wrote about how much money uh, female founders raised in 2019. I've been doing this the last few years, like writing up at the end of the year, what how much capital was invested in female founders. And I use PitchBook as a 
data source. And the latest is 2.8% of capital invested this year was went toward companies that were founded by women. So that means not mixed gender, but that means exclusively women founders. So like maybe two, three, one, whatever it is. When you when you look at mixed gender, I think it's something like 11%. Anyways, I titled this, this article, US VC Investment in Females Founders Hits All-Time High, which is true. But people didn't like, some people didn't like that I decided to ha- headline the article with something positive when in fact these are abysmal statistics, uh, which, you know, is very clear given that it's, I mean, 2.8% is just microscopic. But yeah, so there was a lot of backlash over that, which I found interesting because in the past, I mean, I've written like, I don't know, tons, dozens of articles about funding or the funding, the gender funding gap, I guess, specifically. And I've noticed that people are really critical when I am too negative. So I was so I was intrigued that the f- that by being positive, I was getting just as much criticism. And there was one in particular uh, where someone said it it struck her as paradoxical paradoxically indicative of the slow progress being made in the industry towards gender parity. It, it's I guess it's just I'm curious what you think, but it's tough in these situations because it's like do you, ha- I mean you want to be just as, as objective as you can be. Yes. And of course, my headline was fact. But yep. and yet, I mean, it's really funny when we talk about stuff like this and you mention emails and comments that you get, because I get far fewer people just don't criticize what I put out as much. And I don't think I, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that anything I do is better than yours. In fact, maybe the opposite. It is interesting because I get a lot of feedback, which I actually really like, and I really appreciate it. What, I remember I was talking with a, another colleague here at TechCrunch in, uh, who is male, and he said that people never DM him when, when they have like, I don't know, like sometimes I'll have like a, t- a minor typo in a TechCrunch story and like I will get a DM like immediately, which I like. But he said that that never happens to him, which I thought that was interesting, too. Maybe he writes really boring stuff. You never know. Um, but I, I do think women get a lot more comments. People feel much freer to criticize women uh, online. And this has been a trend we've seen in social media. It's definitely true for journalists who get uh, attacked and harassed a lot more. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm disappointed that you were given this level of opprobrium. I don't think you made any sort of mistake because you had to put this stuff into context and you only have so many words available in a headline. You can't give all the nuance possible because you have a limited amount of space. That's the problem with headlines. Right. I mean, short by definition. Totally. Like I could have said USVC investment, female founders hits all time high, but is still very low. But, you know, it. and I think like another thing that I received via email, somebody saying that I, I was discouraging groups of women from even trying to jump in. And I have had that exact thing said to me when I've done stories where the headlines sounded a little more disappointing, like like upsetting about the set. So I'm just kind of like, well, I, I think if anything, saying it's hitting an all-time high would encourage yes. women. So I, I, think- I mean, I don't know, but it's kind of like, well, I don't know what you're trying to, it's not the most constructive feedback. I mean, damn the haters, full speed ahead is, is my take on this because I think your approach is fine. But um, let's highlight a couple of other stats while we're here on the topic. Uh, first round put out an interesting um, kind of state of startups 2019. Um, shout out to Alex Marshall over there. She's great. Uh, and what this included was a stat that we thought was pretty interesting, which was that 70% of female founders felt their gender hurt their ability to fundraise. So that is really high. And I trust them to be correct on that. And so I'm disappointed that the industry is still at a point in which that high of a portion of, of women who are raising money view that as an impediment. Um, 
I forget. Do they give us any historical context on that figure, Kate? Has it gone down or up? Um, I, you, I, you can look. If you go onto the site, you can look at past years. I didn't do that, but um, my guess is that that's probably staying somewhat steady. One thing yeah. that's worth noting is that 80% of the respondents of the first round survey were male. So, which is fine. I mean, actually, that's rep- probably somewhat representative. So that's, you yeah. know, it's just a, it's a healthy sample size. But like when you're looking at these, these questions like that, it's kind of interesting to see. One thing I liked was that keeping in mind that it was 80% male, there was a question about how important is diversity at your company or how important should it be? And I think 80% of people said that it is. So mm-hmm. you're, which, which to me, I, and I just read that as like, oh, all those guys are like thinking diversity is important, which is good. Since it's like, that was like 700 men and like a hundred women or something. All right. That would not be the right math, but you get what I'm saying. I, I get what you're saying. It's somewhere there. I yeah. think there is a, there is encouraging trends in some of this data, but the absolute numbers are still ridiculously small across the board and often, or, or too high in the case of the percentage of women who think their gender is an impediment. So um, I think what we say, I think every year is let's see faster progress next year. Like, yeah. I think, sorry. One thing also unrelated to gender, diversity. Um, I liked the part of the state of startup survey from first round that talks about um, how many hours of sleep people get and then how many hours they work in a week. So 40% of people in startups work like about 60 hours a week and then 40% get about seven hours a night, which that's sleep is actually, I was surprised. Most people seem to be getting a healthy amount. Seven hours I think is fine. I mean, if you look at the survey, there are 15% 15% of people are working 80 hour weeks, 30% are working like 70 hour weeks and 40% are working 60. So like basically everyone is working between 60 and 80 hours a week, which is quite a lot of hours. Yeah. But I don't think this is indicative of all startup employees. This is, you know, 950 people that are founders and I would presume more senior-ish employees. And it's certainly true that at a startup, if you're an exec director, you know, anything in that level, you're going to be working a lot. But if you're, you know, a kind of a regular- 80 hours a week is a lot of hours. Just uh, saying. Whew. It's a lot of hours. There's not a lot of time in life for a startup, sleep, and anything else. You can kind of do those two things. How do you work 80 hours a week and sleep seven hours a night? If you did nothing else, maybe. I guess, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Um, one more data point before we move on is that uh, our friend Natasha Mascarenas over at Crunchbase News put together a pretty cool uh, chart. And the number of female-founded companies that reached unicorn status reached an all-time high in this in 2019. Uh, at 21, which is up from 18, sorry, 15 in 2018, and then single digits uh, in preceding years. So while some of the numbers are disappointing and kind of sad to see, this one is a bit more positive and it's nice to end on a high note. So I covered around this week, a company called Prod Perfect put together a $13 million Series A led by Anthos Capital. And if you're not familiar with Anthos Capital, don't worry, I wasn't either. Uh, but I did a little research and they were actually one of the investors that put money into Honey, which is that browser deal plugin thing that I think PayPal bought for like $4 billion, blowing everyone's mind. Uh, and then it turns out though, the, the, the connection here for me that's kind of fun is that I actually know one of the founders, Dan Winding, from my back in the Chicago days when I was in that tech scene. So it's kind of fun to see someone that I haven't seen for a bajillion years uh, and to reconnect with them. Um, Short version of what the company does, they do autonomous uh, end-to-end testing for kind of web environments. Uh, QA is hard, they're making it easier, and their goal is to kind of have a pretty neat uh, kind of system that lets you do a lot of the testing without spending a lot of your development resources on that. And then um, just a couple more quick data points on this. They used to be in Boston, 
which is near me. They moved to SF and now they're kind of remote first and they're at 2 million ARR, give or take. So I'm presuming they're going to shoot for like a triple in 2020, probably shoot for like 6 million ARR. And um, Triple, triple. Wait, please read what you have written in the script. Um, <laughs> well, I wrote in the script, triple, triple, double, 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 LMAO, <laughs> give or take. And that's why you don't read your notes out loud verbatim, Kate. But I liked it so much. You do, but you know what the triple, triple, double, double, double is, right? No. Uh oh. Mm. Is this something I should know? Is it a sports um, reference? Sports it's not, reference. No, no, it's a venture capital reference. It's Uh-oh. not sports. What's the? What is it? So the high water mark for kind of fast startup growth to reach 100 million ARR within a certain time frame, you should quote quote uh, triple the first year, triple again the second year, and then double the next three years. And if you do that according to the math, you'll hit 100 million ARR. But it says double four times. I was making a joke in the notes for myself because I was in a good mood. Uh, I didn't so your joke was you notes. added an extra double to the triple, triple, double, double, double? Yeah, and then I wrote LMAO with like six O's, <laughs> two of which are capitalized. Okay, well, thank so, you for teaching me that reference because I, I should probably have known it. Anyways, uh, <laughs> the CEO also noted that it's good to have a stockpile of money. They have plenty of capital going into 2020. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. All right, good, good. let's talk about Pepper, Kate. Pepper. Um, so Connie Loizos wrote a story this week about Pepper, which is a new startup that raised $5.6 million in seed funding from Upfront Ventures, which is that LA firm behind Bird and a bunch of other companies. Lower Hippo, it's a New York firm. Um, and Manta Ray Ventures, which I am not familiar with, is a venture capital firm that invested. So they help direct-to-consumer startups and other digitally native businesses better predict and understand how every investment they're making impacts the future health of their business, i.e. they help startups not overspend. How they do that, I'm not totally sure. You know, I didn't cover the company, but I think it's interesting and kind of reflective of the state of startups right now. There are so many companies with so much cash getting blown into them by big funds that they don't necessarily know how to spend and then they potentially do overspend too fast and they run out of money. And we've seen that happen a lot. And a lot of companies shut down because of this. And in the era of SoftBank, when they will give you $300 million, when what you really need is $7 million, it's probably worth it to pay a company like this to help you out. Though, can this company survive in a different environment? I think not. It depends, I'd say. I, I hear your point. I don't think you're you're heading in the wrong direction. But the question is, how much money can they really save people? Because if they can go into a, st- a company that's spending yeah. X amount of money on Facebook ads and Instagram ads and Google ads to drive new customers or, or new sales, and they can save them a material percentage, that might actually become more important in a downturn because everyone's desperate to save money. At the same time, you're totally right that spend will probably fall dramatically, cutting into their possible revenue base. So I, I, I can see it both yeah. ways. I think in a downturn, if we actually have one, I think that um, these startups that cater to other startups will be some of the first to suffer, um, even if they're providing services that are helpful and money saving. I still think that a lot of companies will hire internally instead of like paying a bunch of other companies to do some of these things. And I think that's probably what will happen um right now it's a great business model like we talked about this a lot on equity we talked about it a lot during the yc days because so many companies coming out of yc were startups serving startups and i think it's really great in a frothy market it's like very smart and it works really well but you think you need to have other opportunities for customers for that to work in a, in a different funding environment or different like uh financial environment 
Yeah. The, and the last thing we'll throw onto this little round is that one thing we've seen in a number of startup verticals, like, I don't know, like, like Neo banking, for example, is rising CAC or rising CAC, which is customer acquisition costs. Mm-hmm. And so as, as a lot of companies compete for the same channels, Instagram, Facebook, and Google being the kind of the big three, uh, you can end up competing and overpaying for clicks and overpaying for new customers. And so, um, this company is founded by these, these Snapchat or Snap, uh, former Snap people, I think is the correct way to say that. Um, and so they probably have a pretty good view into the social media marketing space. So hopefully they can, they can reduce some spend uh, and save people some money, um, especially in the D2C space. I'm excited about it. I'm curious what happens when the market falls apart, but um, they have $5.6 million more. So we'll see what they do. Uh, and that brings us to the last thing today, Kate, which is, um, kind of a series that I've been working on for lack of a better term. Um, I was onboarding last week. Here's the backstory. I was onboarding and I was really tired of it. <laughs> and if you've never onboarded to a fortune, like 15 company, there's many things you have to do to get like your technology <clears throat> even just turned on. And I was, I had passwords written down all over the place and I was trying to get phones to link up and getting computers on Wi-Fi was a huge hot mess. And I, I finally got kind of stable. And so I decided to write something. And I just wrote a piece that kind of summarized some stuff that I'd seen while I was offline, which is that a number of companies had announced this $100 million ARR threshold. Um, surprisingly, it got a big reaction. My whole point was that I was curious why we still focus on unicorns as like the cool kid club in the startup world when there's like 500 of them. So it's not really special anymore. Uh, and so what if we talked about these companies that if it kind of nine-figure recurring revenue in this example, but I, I would take trailing as well if you're not in the software space, for example. Um, and then a, a couple of companies that I talked about initially were was Asana, Druva, and WalkMe. And then a bunch of people reached out and GitLab will hit 100 million ARR in January. And then Ignite, Braze, and O'Reilly have also crossed 100 million ARR threshold. And I have some more companies coming up that are also going to be at the threshold. So people have been kind of pinging me about this. I'm curious from your perspective, if you were redeciding where you would draw the line around what startups are kind of cool and hot, uh, putting valuation aside, what would you pick as like the metric? I think that the best metric would probably be ARR. I, I did somewhat facetiously tweet a while back that I didn't think a company should be considered a unicorn unless they were valued at more than a billion dollars and also profitable. But I know that you can't be profitable if you're prioritizing growth and blah, 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 blah. I understand. I can, yeah, people just were like, yeah. So that that I understand, but it, it was more represent. It was kind of just so, sort of saying that our current metrics of considering companies a quote unquote unicorn when they're valued at a billion dollars isn't really the most effective anymore because there's like hundreds of these companies becoming that way every year now, and it used to be like there were sixty five, and I think there's now like mm-hmm. two thousand. It's just crazy. So. Um, probably something like this in annual recurring revenue and just kind of showing that they actually are making money is a really good way of going about it. But the thing is, companies don't want to share that data. They do want to share their valuation because it means nothing. Yes. So It doesn't tell you really what's going on. And yeah. so digging into what you just said, though, I think the profitability point is very interesting because you're really asking about kind of quality of revenue and then cost of business, which is kind of will net out to profitability. And uh, a friend of mine who I'm actually going to hopefully cite in the next couple of days if I can get enough stuff done before Christmas happens. Christmas is poorly timed this year. I have so much to do. Um, Stupid, stupid holidays. Uh, He was arguing that just this focus on ARR was stupid because you can spend a billion dollars getting to a hundred million dollar ARR really inefficiently if you wanted to. Why not 
take a look at some kind of standard sassy stuff like CAC to LTV ratios, you know, CAC repayment time periods, all that fun stuff. And I, I had the same reaction you had, which was no one will tell me that. If I, if I ask the average, you know, series D startup, what's your CAC repayment period? on a blended basis, they're going to be like, well, go fuck yourself. Like, we're not going to tell you. Although so. not that many reporters are going to ask that specific question. So, I mean, like the, a lot of the, fi- a lot of the tech reporting is not so in depth on financials. And we've actually talked about this before. I think like you prioritize that more than I do in, in your reporting and that, which I think is, is great, but like you're sort of, you're interested in these things that like maybe some other reporters might not be as interested in because you are such a lover of like financials. And also I was reading one of your stories this week and I don't remember what it was, but you had a screenshot of, was it an, it was a screenshot of, of like a, of, of a uh, earnings report or something. What was it? And you had red That's arrows, like you had red arrows in it. Did you do that? And I wanted to know if, did you put the red in arrows in there yourself? Oh yeah. Oh, I was laughing so hard because I just knew you did that. You were like sitting on your computer, like adding, <laughs> Chris is laughing. I just, I, I can't explain it. I wish, I wish people could look at it as I'm trying to, I'll put a picture of it in the um, equity post. Uh, if you're if you're watching this on YouTube, Chris will put it up on the screen now. So you're seeing it. What I did was I took a <laughs> screenshot of this company's income statement. It was a hot mess. It was you commune, this, this oh, yeah, Chinese yeah. we work knockoff catastrophe. And I was pointing out that it's gross margin negative. And if you don't know what that means, it's bad. It's very, very bad. The big red so arrows. Drew, I put with the, 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 you know, on Mac, you make a screenshot, you can add like little, little blocks. I just added two fat arrows, like revenue, cost of revenue. Because no it. one knows how to read these things. So I was like, I'll help. No, um, I, that was actually really smart. And people, that's true. People don't know how to read them. So it's helpful to highlight. But um, it was just the most Alex thing I'd ever seen. I was just like, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't take it. Anyways, the point is uh, valuations are overdone. ARR is cool. There are better ways to think about startup exclusivity, but no one will tell us those things. So we have to find the middle point between what we actually want to know and what we do know and we've decided that it's roughly ARR. I will name this group of companies eventually, probably Centaurs or Centurions or something like that. But uh, Centaurs and is, Centurions? What? Well, Cent, C-E, it means 100, right? Wait, what's so a Centurion like, though? Uh, that was Alex Conrad's idea from Forbes. Oh, okay, cool. Anything with a C-E-N-T prefix will kind of work, but like Centipede sounds mean. So I, I like I Centipede. I, I love mean, that. Let's do Do that. You want to step on too many legs. Everyone's going to get so mad if that's what, if that's the new term, because unicorn is so much more majestic and fantastical. Yeah. I want people to actually use it. So if I pick something that's like a joke and mean, it'll just be me talking to myself in the corner. You know, that's no good. Okay. Well, brainstorm and get back to me. I I will brainstorm and get back to everyone. I'll put it on the website, but in the meantime, we should stop. Um, Kate, as always, a delight to talk to you. And uh, I hope you have a really, really lovely holiday. week. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Sorry, I'm reading reviews of cats because I'm so intrigued and I really, I really want to see it. I mean, you knew they were going to be bad. But I'm just like, I'm so intrigued. I just need to see it. My curiosity is so much right now that I like, it's curiosity painful. Curiosity killed the yeah. cats. I don't even like, I've never even seen cats or care about it. Or I don't even like cats as animals, but I'm just so intrigued by this movie because of the way they've done it. I it's mean, I'm so going to see it weird. just for that reason. It's so yeah. weird. But I'm going to wait till it's on Netflix.
I'm totally, I'm totally giving them my money. I respect that. 